awesome time here. Uh, we spent about five weeks in Jonah. We're going to spend uh, the better part of five months or so in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. This is going to take us through August. So we are starting now what we will continue through the summer. And uh, we're just going to be walking through chapters 5 to 7 slowly as we go. And uh, so we begin that this morning. And uh, what I'm hoping we are able to do here this morning is just think about some of the introductory issues of what is going on. Where does the sermon occur? Who's the one teaching it? Who's the one writing about it? Who's the crowd that's involved? What's the scene? Where is Jesus at this point in his ministry? I just want to explore those things with you this morning because I think understanding some of that broader context around the sermon gives us an opportunity to maybe understand the sermon a little better. And then we're going to think through just some of um, what I believe are the two broad strokes that the sermon can fall underneath. I, I think it serves us in two ways. It has a twofold purpose. And so those two aspects are going to be really what guide us over the next several months as we consider then the details of what Jesus says and what Matthew records. And so uh, I want to pray before we go any further and then we'll begin just stepping through some of these introductory things. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to five um, because you're going to look about three verses before the beginning of five and we're going to look specifically at 4.23 to chapter 5 verse 1 this morning. Um, and so before we go any further though, let's, let's pray. God in heaven, again, we, we, we come and we draw near as those who, who need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak and that your word would, would speak. And so God, God, the words that I say, I pray that they would be accurate to what it is that you have said. God, ultimately, we don't need to hear me. We need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak through your word and through myself as your servant clearly. God, give us ears to hear. Help us, help us to understand what it is that you have said. God, help us to draw near this morning now to listen. And God, as we turn our focus and attention on this sermon, God, we pray that you'd help us to see this morning some of the big ideas and how, how, it, how it functions and how it fits and what it is that, that it serves and how it serves. God, we pray that you would be gracious to us in those ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we're going to try and do, and maybe not in this exact order, but we're just going to ask some investigative questions this morning. The who, what, where, why, when, and hows of investigative questions. And quite frankly, these are the questions that on Wednesday nights, as we're working through teaching the Bible to, to students, these are the questions we're telling them to ask when they open up a, a section of the Bible. Let's start asking, who's speaking? Where are they speaking? What have they said? Who are they speaking to? Those types of 
questions are the ones that we need to be asking ourselves. And one of the first things that we just need to consider together is that there's a, there's a dual author to what Matthew writes, as there is in any book of the Bible. There's a divine author, and then there's a human author. And God himself inspires his word, and Jesus has spoken. And there's a divine author behind the words of Scripture. But there's also a human author. Matthew was a real guy who had a real job before Jesus came and found him and said, follow me. And then Matthew quit his job and followed Jesus and became an apostle. And, and there's a real guy who lived in real space and time. And so I, I just want to explore some of those things with you. And the first thing that we see in regards to the divine author, and we thought about this at Christmas time in regards to Jesus being the greatest prophet the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, or I want you to call out to the Samarians, or Samaritans, those living in Samaria. I want you to tell them some things that I have to say. Amos, I want you to do that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, I want you to go and speak. And here's what you say. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And one of the most striking features of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus will, on repeat through chapter 5, say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so Jesus comes not as one speaking the words that God told him. Jesus comes as God speaking. And it's an amazing claim that he makes to his divinity. You've heard it said long ago by the prophets to your fathers, but now I say to you. There's, there's some audacity behind that statement. An audacity that he is fully capable of making. Peter tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried actually shows up in the book of Acts. I think it's in chapter 28 where, uh, no, it's a little earlier than that, where um, it, there's the record of a shipwreck and Paul is, is on a ship and they were, gonna, they were in the midst of a violent storm and they were not sure what to do. And so what they did was they just, they just lifted up the sails and allowed the ship to be carried along wherever the sea and the winds would take them. That, that's the idea here. That the Holy Spirit carried along these men. Men like Matthew. As they wrote. And so there's a divine author behind the scriptures. And that's God the Holy Spirit. And what's really unique about the gospels. And when Jesus speaks. Is that we have the Holy Spirit inspiring the recording of those words. But you have Jesus as God himself saying those words. And many of you I'm sure have those words in a different color in your Bible. So quick show of hands. Who's got a red letter edition in their Bible? Okay. Alright very good. Nothing wrong with that. Who doesn't have a red letter edition? All right, we got a few, few hands there. All right, nothing wrong with that either. One of the things that we just need to be careful of is thinking that somehow those red letters are more important or more inspired than the black letters. 
because of the very truths that we're looking at right now in regards to the divine author behind Scripture. If all Scripture is God-breathed, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, if no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the black letters are just as inspired as the red letters. And so there's not a problem if you have a different font color. But let's just make sure that we understand that it is just as much the Word of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, as it is in Matthew 5, verse 3. As Matthew shifts from giving us an intro about what Jesus said to then what he said. So the red letters can help us in just identifying the fact that Jesus was speaking, but there is a human author then, and Matthew is the one who is writing these words, and he's a very, very interesting Character. We find out a little bit about Matthew in chapter 9, when Matthew records for us his call. And his call was very similar to that of Peter and Andrew, James and John, where Jesus comes on the scene and says, follow me. And he has a very similar response. He follows. He rises up immediately and he follows. Matthew tells us about that in chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, the there was the Sea of Galilee. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew was a bit of an unsavory man. You remember it was in our summer series where we were looking at but if not for grace and we profiled these men. That was the morning that Dave sat here at the tax booth and Joe came to pay his taxes. Matthew was a bit of an unsavory man. He was a man that was not well liked by anybody in that society because he was a tax collector. And as such, he would have been outcasted, ostracized from the local synagogue. He would have been booted and removed from any religious parts of daily life. And his friends would have been other tax collectors or those known commonly as sinners because they also would have been booted out of the synagogues or the religious rhythms of life. And I I think it's hard for us to appreciate Maybe the, the, the hatred that other individuals would have had for Matthew. We pay taxes, but we don't pay them in the same way. And, and so it's a little different. And, and some of the sting is, is removed from our, our duty of paying taxes. So let's just play a hypothetical together here. If, if you made 40000 a year, and, and let's say your taxes were 20%, which is not a, a high tax rate, if you count your, your FICA and your Social Security aspect of that as like 765, that leaves you about 13% federal tax there. So it's, it's a pretty low tax bracket. Um, but let's say you made 40000 a year and you had 20% tax rate with all of that. That ends up being about $670 a month. And so if you get paid bi-weekly, twice a month, you know, two, two Fridays or so, uh, that's about $335 out of each paycheck. Now, let's say that it wasn't taken before you got your check, 
that the IRS instead put agents at your place of employment to collect that money. And so before you were able to leave work on payday, you had to either you know, cash the check or take the cash your employer gave you and shell out $335 to the man at the door who doesn't let you leave work until you have done so. It probably begins to sting a little bit more. There, there, there's now a face. It's not just this agency that we're all terrified of. There's a man or a woman who's got a face, perhaps a gun, and you, you, you're not going to mess with them. But let's, let's then think through this just a step further because Matthew and other tax collectors had the authority of the government to overcharge. And so maybe $335 is what you had to give him every two weeks, but you knew the government only was asking for $300 flat. And so you knew the guy at the door, the woman at the door, was taking you for a $35 ride every time you checked out on those Fridays. And you had nothing to say about it and were powerless against it because they had the arm of the state behind them forcing that upon you. That's Matthew. Sure could have. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Zacchaeus was another one of these tax collectors, the wee little man. They certainly were. Absolutely, Ralph. They had betrayed their countrymen. And their countrymen knew it. They knew it. A, a secular historian writing about this time period said this, The modest economy of the country, that of Israel, bent and at last broke under the taxes imposed upon it by the luxurious court and building program that was out of proportion to the national wealth. What does that mean? King of the Jews, Herod at this time, and Caesar wanted more than the people of Israel could give them, and they broke the economy. This was Matthew. He was this man, and Jesus comes upon him, and he is at his job, probably working import-export tariff-type tax, sitting alongside the road. So you catch a bunch of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and you're going to take it to the market, and he's there to count them and to ask you how many you have and to verify that and then to tell you how much you owe him. Or perhaps you've bought something and you plan to leave that area. You might have an export tariff that you have to pay. Well, that's Matthew, and Jesus finds him at work and just says, follow me. And he gets up immediately, and he follows. Now, what's really, really interesting, and I just want to bring it up briefly because I think it's significant for us as we think through the way Scripture was given. Okay, so divine author, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. Hey, there, there's a divine author behind Scripture. We, we know that. We believe that. There, the, the official theological words behind that are verbal plenary inspiration that, that God has in the very words and the very smallest of details along with the big picture aspect 
revealed and inspired everything. Matthew wasn't there at the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus came and found him later and said, follow me. I don't believe Matthew was there to hear the sermon firsthand. And as we think through just how this works, I want to bring it up because it's just something that we need to just discuss. Because it doesn't at all mean that what Matthew writes in chapters 5 and 7, 5 to 7, are any less inspired or any less accurate or any less authoritative. Because he did so and he wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But let's, it's just as we think through the chronology of Matthew's life, I don't want us to find ourselves at some point or have you find yourself at some point a couple weeks from now going, well, Matthew wasn't even there. How do we know Jesus said these things? Well, we know Jesus said these things because men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and God has inspired his word. So we place our faith and trust in the divine author and then there's really logical reasons and explanations given for how Matthew might have heard these things. He spent three years following Jesus around. Jesus could have said to him, hey, Matthew, I want to tell you about this sermon that I preached before you came on the scene when you were still fleecing your countrymen. And this is what I had to say. The other disciples could have said that as well. So I just want us to be thinking about these things in the correct way. Okay, so let's not say five to seven are somehow inaccurate or unauthoritative because Matthew wasn't there. If we go to that Conclusion, if we jump there, then quite frankly, we got to throw out chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted. Because Matthew wasn't in the wilderness with Jesus when he was tempted. We got to throw out parts of chapter 1 because Matthew wasn't in Joseph's bedroom when Gabriel appeared to him. There's a lot we got to throw away if we're not careful in thinking about both the divine and the human aspect the scripture's authorship. All scripture is God-breathed. All of it's profitable. All of it's useful. All of it is training in righteousness and correcting error. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And a couple decades later, after Matthew gets this wake-up call at his job, the Holy Spirit inspires him to record these words that Jesus spoke. He records other things. Like I said, he records the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4. He records things about John the Baptist in chapter 3. He records the visit of the wise men in chapter 2. I mean, he wasn't at these events. He records what Gabriel had to say to Joseph, and he did so under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew has for us the authoritative words of God, which are accurate and worth listening to. And so as we now get a little bit more focused on the sermon, here's where I want to just spend the rest of our time. It's going to fall under these three headings there. We're going to just look at the scene around the sermon, the audience of people that were there for the sermon, and then the two big broad strokes that the sermon encompasses. So let's jump to the scene and let's go then to Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 because Matthew's going to paint for us a picture of the scene that immediately 
precedes Jesus' teaching. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew tells us that Jesus' ministry at this point included three things. He was teaching, he was preaching or proclaiming, and he was healing. That was Jesus' ministry. That is what Matthew tells us is happening at this point. And so his fame spread, verse 24, throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so the scene begins with Jesus traveling throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, or preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. There was a difference that Matthew gives us between Jesus' teaching ministry and his preaching or his proclaiming ministry. And the teaching ministry would have been one of, of, of instruction. It would have been one of sitting down and, you know, hey, this is what this verse means. And this is how to interpret that. We get a glimpse of that in Luke 4. We're, we're told that Jesus went to the synagogue. He unrolled a scroll from Isaiah. He read from it. And he said, today this has been proclaimed in your hearing. He rolled up the scroll. He sat down and they tried to throw him off a cliff. That was part of Jesus' teaching ministry. And there's not much, quite frankly, recorded of what Jesus said in synagogues. Synagogue would have been the religious or life community hub for these people at this point in time. It's certainly centered around the religion of Judaism. But this is where they would have had um, disputes arbitrated before, you know, the elders. There would have been people there that you would have gone to, to to settle those things. And certainly on the Sabbath day, you would have gathered for the reading of Scripture. And you can just see throughout the book of Acts, as Paul traveled around, he went and found synagogues. And he explained to them from the Scriptures who Christ was. Now at that point in time, the scriptures were what we call the Old Testament. Jews would not have called it the Old Testament. They still don't call it the Old Testament because they don't see that there's a new. It would have just been the scriptures. It would have been the law and the prophets. It would have been Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law and the prophets, the scriptures, the Psalms. They would have expounded upon them. We're told that Jesus' ministry included that. But his ministry also included the proclaiming or the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That would have been Jesus walking and traveling. And as Mark records us, and as Matthew records for us in verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That word preach means to herald. It means to call out. It's probably best understood in the sense of a, of a town crier, which we don't have those in our society anymore. Occasionally, you see them over in London when there's like an, a, a birth announcement for one of the royal family members. The, the guy will come out dressed in, 
in, in clothing that is from several hundred years ago, and he will unroll a scroll, and he will cry out something on behalf of the queen or on behalf of the royal family. He is proclaiming. He is heralding. He is preaching. That's this idea here. That Jesus called out. He heralded the good news, and we're told that he healed every disease. In verse 24, there's a, there's a bit of a staggering shift that happens in Matthew's account. Because in verse 23, we have Jesus traveling throughout all of Galilee. And in verse 24, the location changes ever so slightly, but ever so significantly. His fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him, all the sick those afflicted with diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Part of the scene of what Matthew records for us is that Jesus is healing non-Jewish people. There's tremendous significance there. Part of what Matthew intends to do in his entire gospel, all 28 chapters of his gospel account, is to declare to us and prove to us that Jesus is king. He came as as the one born king of the Jews, but he's king of all people. And so he comes proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The, The sovereign rule and reign of God is at hand. And from the very beginning chapters of Matthew's gospel account, you have the nations in view. You have the wise men coming from afar to come worship the king. You have here in chapter 24, or chapter 4, verse 24, people, non-Jews from Syria, coming down from the north because of the fame of Jesus that had spread. You have then the command in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, to go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew intends to demonstrate very clearly that Jesus is not just the one born king of the Jews. He is the one who is king over all. And Jesus' ministry demonstrates that. Here in verse 24, we're told that he is healing non-Jews. In verse 25, we get a picture of the fame of Jesus that had spread. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so, if you've ever looked at the the map in the back of your Bible of the ministry of Jesus, I used to do so when I got bored at the guy that was preaching when I was a kid. I'd I'd look at the map in the back and try to understand it. It is probably one that that works in in long, it's it's a portrait map, not landscape. You've got to turn your Bible the other way to make sense of it, because it doesn't all fit on there. Well, let's just think about that map for a minute. If you want to turn there, you can. I won't be offended at all if you turn there. Hopefully it's relevant to us. But Syria would have been the land above the Sea of Galilee. So if you look towards the top part of that map, not at the very, very top, probably about an inch before the very top of the page, you're going to see what looks to be like a giant lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. It was a giant lake. Above that, not even pictured is where Syria was. So we're talking about a region even higher than the map of the ministry of Jesus covers. 
But his fame spread throughout all of Galilee and the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a region known as and referred to as the Ten Cities. Deca means ten. Polis means city, as it still does in our culture today. You have Annapolis is the city of Anne. Indianapolis is the city of Indiana. You have the Decapolis is the ten cities. That would have been to the east, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you find the Sea of Galilee, you think about to the north, that's off the page, not pictured. That's Syria. They're coming down. You have those to the east and southeast of the Sea of Galilee where the ten cities were, the Decapolis, mostly non-Israelites, mostly Gentile inhabitants of those cities. They were coming over and Jesus' fame was spreading through there. Then you have Matthew listing for us towards the south end of your map, the capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem. This is where the king would have been. This is just a few miles from where Bethlehem was, where Jesus was born. The kingdom centered there. The capital city, Judea, would have been the region towards the south. That would have encompassed all of that. And then beyond, excuse me, beyond the Jordan would have been towards the east of the Jordan River. So if you find the bottom half of your map, find Jerusalem, go over to the right a little bit, you're going to see the Jordan River pop in there. Beyond the Jordan would have been the area to the east of that. Again, a predominantly Gentile inhabited region. I think it was, roughly speaking, some 5,400 square miles that that map you have encompasses. Jesus' fame has spread like wildfire. He's come teaching in the synagogues. He's come preaching. The kingdom was at hand. He's calling men and women to repent and to believe in the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease. He's healing those with various diseases and pains. He's healing those who are are oppressed or under the control of demonic influences. He's healing those who we're told are, are epileptics would have been a way that they had referred to those who had seizures. He's healing those who were paralytics, those that had or did not have the use of certain parts of their bodies. Mark records for us a dramatic episode of Jesus healing a paralytic man. When he says that the friends of that guy could not even get into the house to see Jesus, and they ripped a hole in the roof that lowered him down, and Jesus heals the man. His fame is spreading like wildfire. And then Matthew tells us a little bit about who was in attendance, who the audience was. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 5 that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down and his disciples came to him. I think the crowds in attendance here would have been twofold and Matthew gives us that designation. One would have been the crowds and 
that bookends both parts of the sermon. Just jump ahead real briefly to chapter 7, verse 28. It's the second to last verse in this sermon. Actually, it's not a part of the sermon. It's part of Matthew's summary that he gives after Jesus had preached this sermon. And we're told there, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And so the crowds were there. Jesus did pull away, his disciples did come to him, but the crowds were there as well. And the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. But oftentimes in the gospel accounts, the crowds are those who are just looking for a free meal. They're just looking for those that, that, are, that are really more glad that Jesus healed them of a physical ailment than they are interested in anything that he might have spiritually. It's those who will one day later shout and chant, crucify him. It's, it's a way to reference those who are, are not antagonistic against him outrightly, but are looking more for the free meal and the healings than to repent and believe in the gospel. And the disciples here, and we can trace this out throughout all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a very general way that the word disciple is used, and then there's a much more specific way that the word disciple is used. And as you look through and from the beginning of a gospel account towards the end of that gospel account, the same exactly is true for Matthew as it is Mark, Luke, and John, it begins generally. The disciples are just spoken of those who follow Jesus. They might be traveling with him. They, they could have just kind of hitched their wagon up to the train and just been walking around with him. I mean, this guy's doing some amazing stuff right now. He's healing everybody. He's healing every disease. He's healing every affliction. There's some an amazing things to follow here. There's a lot of popularity and fame going on at this point. And disciple was just a very general way to refer to somebody who follows and who follows a teacher. And the word disciple comes from the word discipline, and it has the idea of both an instructive and corrective aspect to it. And here, the word most generally referred or understood is just the instructive aspect of it. You have a teacher or a rabbi teaching people following him. Those were his disciples. But you have the word disciple towards the end of each four of the gospel accounts, meaning something entirely, be, entirely different and much more narrow in its focus and specific. It becomes a way to directly reference the twelve. And we don't even have to wait to the end to get there. It happens pretty quickly. In John 6, John records for us after Jesus feeds the 5,000, which would probably have been more about fifteen to 20,000 if you count men and women, that they came back the next day and they wanted another free meal. And Jesus had some really difficult things for them to understand about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he was trying to give them a way to understand that he wasn't just there to fill their bellies. He wanted to fill their souls as well. And we're told that his disciples went away. And Jesus turns to the 11, or the 12, excuse me, and says, are you guys going to go as well? And Peter speaks up, and like, where are we going to go? And there's a distinction drawn. And so as we see the word disciples here in the beginning of Matthew 5, and we think about the audience, let's not just restrict that to just the 12 at this point. Because again, if, if Matthew's not even there. There's not even the full 12 as we might 
refer to them later on. It was people that followed Jesus. He was a teacher in their minds, and he was one to follow because they were teaching him some things. And he does so. And he goes up on a mountain. He sits down. Those following him came to him, and he begins to speak. And so as we just consider then the two big broad strokes of this sermon, it really has a twofold function and feature to it. The first is, is that it presents a radical ethical standard for living, and one that far surpassed the common understanding of the day. And we're going to see that on display when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and every one of those statements that is made is a statement that takes those listening from understanding or obeying the letter of the law to understanding and obeying the heart behind it. Jesus, in this way, was calling and commanding his hearers to a higher standard. And it gave those disciples, in the same way that it will us, a way of understanding the heart of God, the plan of God, and the desires of God. Part of the heart of God is that his heart was never for his people to just follow the letter of the law, to have external actions that did the right things on the right days in the right order. That wasn't God's heart. His heart was to have people have their hearts fully submitted to him, that they might love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. That's his heart. For our hearts to be joyfully submitted to him. That it would be our joy to say, your will, your way. Not that we just begrudgingly do what we've been told to do on the right days and in the right ways. So that we somehow don't anger this God. That's not his heart at all. Psalm 16 verse 11 tells us that you make known the paths of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. And the Sermon on the Mount, then, it really flips the coin in regards to how we are most prone to think about obedience to the Scriptures. Or let's just make it a little bit more broader. Obedience in any area of life. It's typically something that we do begrudgingly because we don't want to do it. The Sermon on the Mount, it flips the way we understand that because it helps us to see that God's heart's not our begrudging submission. His heart's not trying to keep us from good things. It's trying to lead us to the greatest things. So any of you that have had children will have probably had a moment like this when you're outside with your child and you tell them to not go play in the street. You want what's best for your child. You're not trying to keep them from the good things that playing in the street might bring them. You're trying to spare them from some harm, but also help them to experience the fullness of joy in playing outside. It's a whole lot more fun in the grass than it is in the street because you might not get run over by a car. And for the child that decides to stomp their feet up and down and scream and throw a pity party and a temper tantrum, 
all they've done in that moment is just reveal their foolishness. Because your heart for them is to not keep them from something that might be good, but to lead them to something that's greater and to spare them from harm. That's how God, that's how the scriptures lay out obedience. God's not trying to keep us from good things. He's trying to lead us to the greatest things. So one of the questions that we just need to ask ourselves is, what does this begin to then, and how does that begin to shift how we might emotionally respond to the gospel and to even then the specific commands to obey God? I think it radically changes it. If we know that God is for our joy and in his or at his right hand there's pleasures forevermore. In his presence there's fullness of joy that he makes known the paths of life. So when Jesus has some things to say about you've heard it said don't murder somebody. But I say to you if you've got anger in your heart you've already done it. There might be part of us that want to stomp our feet and scream like a little child and go, well, no, I didn't, I didn't break the letter of the law, and that's not the point. We're missing God's heart in that because he wants us to be led to something greater, not just to have our external actions conform to some set of rules, but to have our hearts transformed. And in that transformation, by faith, we believe that that's actually where the fullness of joy is. That's actually where we find what it is that we're looking for. We see in the Sermon on the Mount that God's plan begins to be revealed. And part of his plan is for the gospel to be seen and heard throughout the ends of the world. And that this would happen through his people who are called to be salt and light. And because of this, we're told to let our light shine before others, so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And the first two really intersect significantly with each other. Because if you believe that all God is interested in is you following an arbitrary set of rules that are keeping you from the most satisfying things that life has to offer, you really don't have any good news to offer to anybody else. Hey, come do this thing on Sunday mornings and get up early and sing, which is weird culturally. People just do that in bars at karaoke night. And we're going to give you a bunch of arbitrary rules to follow. And you know what? You're, you're probably not going to be able to do all the fun things that you got to do before. But it's great. It's good news. Come, join us. Bring your checkbook. You know, it, how is that good news? What about, you know, hey, the, the things that you're trying to chase, the, there might be some desires that are right because God's created us to desire things, but you're looking for them all in the wrong places. You're looking for them in, in places and down paths that are just going to lead to brokenness. But Jesus is the one who came to give life and life abundantly. And those pleasures that you're seeking, well, there's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. 
and that joy that you feel like has been elusive and you never have been able to find and you get your mind or your hands somehow wrapped around it and it just slips away, that's found in his presence. That's where the fullness of joy is. You get some good news then. You've got something to share that's worth listening to. And this is what the woman at the well did. Jesus has this conversation with her, brings up the fact, all on his own accord, that she has had five husbands and is sleeping with a man who is not her husband currently at the time. And she's so blown away that she runs through the town and goes, let me go introduce you to the man that just read my mail. He's told me everything I have ever done. You've got to come and find this guy and pay attention to him. Because she found that there was actually living water somewhere else. And it wasn't down the paths that she had been walking. It's part of God's plan. And God's desire is for our lives to be built on a rock-solid foundation. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like, or does not do them is like the foolish man who builds his house around the sand. He desires for our lives to be built upon an unshakable foundation. So the Sermon on the Mount, it presents an ethical standard to live by without question. There are commands for us to obey without question, but in doing so, we have revealed to us God's heart for us, his plan for us, and his desires for us. And then lastly, the Sermon on the Mount provides for us a constant reminder that we cannot, on our own accord, live this way perfectly. On repeat, the Sermon on the Mount will attack and go after our hearts. And Jesus sets forth an amazing set of statements at two different spots within this sermon. One in the beginning of chapter 5, one at the very end of chapter 5, where he tells those listening, your righteousness, your, your deeds need to far exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The most righteous, externally perfect, holy people they knew. Jesus did not tell them, hey, just be a little better than that guy Matthew who's stealing all of your money. And he says, no, you be better than the very perfect, the most externally, I'm going to qualify that, externally perfect people you know. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he gets at the very tail end of saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. You know, don't let, don't let body parts touch each other. But I say to you, if you've just looked at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed that sin. He's gone way beyond just the external, the physical, and moved it to the heart. And he does that on repeat and then follows that and concludes that section by saying, you've got to be perfect the way your heavenly Father is perfect. The Sermon on the Mount provides us a constant 
reminder that we do not live perfectly. And in this way, it constantly, graciously puts our eyes back on the cross and on the empty tomb and on our Savior, which is the gospel. It constantly reminds us, you can't do it, but Jesus did. And he didn't just pay the penalty for your sin. He lived the perfect life that is required. But you and I have been incapable of living. One scholar said this, No man can live the sermon on the mount in and of himself. There is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount because we're reminded consistently we can't do it. And it leads us back to Jesus both paying the penalty for our sin but also having lived the perfect life. And as we place our faith and trust in Him, He doesn't just forgive us of our unrighteousness were given his righteousness. So it'll be our joy to say your will, your way. It'll be our joy to lay ourselves down because of his grace and mercy and this good news that he came preaching. Let's pray. Father God, we we pray that you would help us to see that as joy. To see that our, our submission is one that, that leads to joy. That that's where the fullness of joy is. That you're not interested in just our begrudging obedience. That you want our joy. You want us to be blessed as we'll look at next week. You want to lead us into the paths of life. You want us to understand the gospel. So God, as we turn our focus and attention on these three chapters over the next several months, would you be gracious to us in reminding us of what Christ has done, both his perfect obedience and his death that paid for my sin. Because he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.